This episode of Felon True Crime is brought to you by Blue Apron, leading providers of quality ingredients and recipes that allow you to create culinary masterpieces in the comfort of your own home. Blue Apron's main mission is to make incredible home cooking accessible to everyone, and they do this by supporting a more sustainable food system, setting the highest standards for ingredients, and building a community of home chefs. Tasty and responsibly sourced produce is delivered fresh to your door. Some examples of meals available in November include pan-seared chicken with roasted fall vegetables and butter caper sauce, spicy lotus root and purple carrot stir-fry with sweet potato noodles, and lemongrass roasted pork with Romanesco cauliflower and coconut rice. For less than $10 per meal, Blue Apron delivers seasonal recipes along with pre-portioned ingredients to make delicious home-cooked meals. Not all ingredients are created equal. And it's true that fresh, high-quality ingredients make a real difference. So it's really important to know where your food comes from. Blue Apron knows that when you cook with incredible ingredients, you make incredible meals. So they set the highest quality standards for their community of artisanal suppliers, family-run farms, fisheries, and ranches. Whether it's Japanese ramen noodles, wild-caught Alaskan salmon, or heirloom tomatoes, Blue Apron is bringing you the best. New recipes are created weekly and are not repeated within a year. You can customize your recipes each week based on your preferences. You can also choose delivery options that suit your needs. And there's no weekly commitment, so you only get deliveries when you want them. Each meal comes with a step-by-step, easy-to-follow recipe card and pre-portioned ingredients that can be prepared in 40 minutes or less. As a special offer to Fallon True Crime listeners, you can check out this week's menu and get your first three meals free with free shipping by going to blueapron.com slash Felon. You'll love how good it feels and tastes to create incredible home-cooked meals with Blue Apron, so don't wait. That's blueapron.com slash felon. Blue Apron, a better way to cook. Welcome to Felon, true crime podcast. Episode 11, The Sydney Mutilator. An intriguing case of murder, mutilation, and mistaken identity. This episode contains descriptions of violence of an extremely graphic nature. So again, listener discretion is advised. Blood spills from his mouth as he gags and tries to spit. A stranger's hands around his neck squeeze tight. With this tightening grip, his life slips away. Through the haze of ale, he drifted in and out of consciousness. But even in this inebriated dream, he struggles for life. The silent assailant is now a blotchy blur that twists and contorts in his vision as he struggles to focus. Blood seeps down his cheeks and streams between the gaps of wiry, clenching fingers. Suddenly the grip of the fingers loosen, and for a brief moment, he feels a sense of relief. But this would be a fleeting glimpse. Just as quick as relief had come, it would be taken. A fist comes crashing down from above, striking his face, sending his limp body crashing to the floor. In the assailant's mind, the victim's face had taken the shape of another, and the pain had flooded back. In 
the early 1960s, a series of violent attacks on vagrant males horrified the city of Sydney and the nation of Australia. It would take a man coming back from the grave for police to crack the case. The 4th of June, 1961, Sydney, Australia. The body of Alfred Greenfield was discovered in a secluded corner of the Domain District. The Domain is an open space of parklands and public baths on the eastern edge of the Sydney CBD. During the day, the area was frequented by swimmers who enjoyed cooling off in the public baths, but at night, it was home to a number of derelicts who used this area as a shelter for drinking sessions. It was not the first time a body had been discovered in Sydney. By this point, the city had experienced a rich history of crime, but the extent of the wounds would haunt those who were unfortunate enough to view the body for years to come. Police were called to the scene and made the following observations. A knife had been thrusted through Alfred Greenfield's neck at least 30 times, severing multiple arteries. Blood spilled from these wounds and pulled around the body. But these wounds would not be the only source from which blood had spilled. Upon closer inspection, police made an even more disturbing discovery. Alfred's pants and underwear had been removed. So too had his penis and testicles. Police searched the scene, looking for any clues that could lead them to what the press would soon dub the mutilator. There were some details of the incident that the media were not permitted to print, but rumours quickly spread throughout the public, and the tale of a male appendage being discovered in Sydney Harbour soon struck fear into the hearts of locals, especially men. Initial police theories suggested that the murder was a crime of passion. They even thought that it may be the work of a jealous lover, putting an end to a man who may have been sneaking around with a lady friend of the murderer. But these theories would soon be discarded when the mutilator struck again. Months had passed and investigators were unable to establish any leads. The case soon went cold and the murder of Alfred Greenfield was filed under unsolved. Then, six months after the first mutilation murder, a body was found, bearing eerily similar wounds. On the 21st of November, 1961, the body of Ernest Cobbin was discovered in Moore Park in a public toilet cubicle, slumped amongst a violent spattering of blood on the walls and floor. The victim's throat had been struck by a knife, which severed his jugular vein. Blood spatter patterns indicate that he received a knife slash in a similar motion to an uppercut. Ernest had defense cut wounds on his forearms and was butchered by a flurry of stabs to the neck, face and chest. Blood formed puddles on the toilet floor and as was the case with the previous body, Ernest's pants and underwear were pulled down to his knees and his penis and testicles removed with a knife. At 5.30am the morning following the murder, police had received a phone call from a mystery man who stated, There's a murdered man in the toilet in Moore Park, opposite the Bat and Ball Hotel. After leaving this message, he quickly hung up. Police swarmed on the location and made the grisly discovery. The media 
quickly got hold of the story, and the headline, Mutilator Strikes Again, rang out across the city. Police were again at a loss for an explanation, and frustratingly, there were no signs of any evidence left behind at the scene. They quickly sprang into action and planned stakeouts at public toilets and known derelict haunts. Undercover police also posed as vagrants, mingling with those they felt could be at risk. To their disappointment, this failed to yield any results. The 31st of March, 1962. The body of Frank McLean was discovered in a lane off the inner city Burke Street. Again, the body featured a series of stab wounds to the throat, face and chest. Again, the genitals had been sliced off the body and taken from the scene. Unlike the previous two murders, which had occurred in remote areas, this attack occurred in a main thoroughfare and the victim had been sighted by witnesses just moments before the attack occurred. Frank McLean had left a hotel in the suburb of Surrey Hills to walk to his boarding house in Albion Street, a short distance away. At 10.35pm, he was seen turning into Little Burke Street by three trainee nurses at the nearby St. Margaret's Hospital. At 10.50pm, he was discovered in a gutter by a couple walking with their baby in a pram. Within minutes of the discovery, 30 detectives swooped on the scene. But again, there was no trace of the mutilator or any evidence that would lead them to him. Surgical doctors in Sydney soon found themselves as part of a witch hunt. One police theory was that Frank McLean's genitals had been removed so precisely with a scalpel it could possibly be the work of a surgeon. Investigations into this lead also proved fruitless. A special police task force was established and police continued to make appeals to the public for any leads. Police received hundreds of calls offering tips. Homes were raided, homeless shelters and hostels were checked regularly, but detectives were still no closer to solving the murders. On the 14th of April in 1962, hope for solving the case came in the form of a man named Patrick Royan. Patrick reported an incident to police that seemed to fit the MO of the mutilator. He claimed that he'd been attacked by a mystery man in Goulburn Street, close to where Frank McLean had been killed. His attacker had scaled a fence, hissed and lunged at him with a long-bladed knife. The knife had caught him lightly, but he had avoided any significant injuries from the attack. His attacker was described as being tall and solid, of foreign appearance, and between 30 and 40 years old, wearing a light suit. This was the closest detectives had been to a lead, and they welcomed Patrick's statement, hoping he could shed more light on the case. But his description of the attack and offender would turn out to be a fabrication. Patrick Royan was discovered to be a mentally unstable alcoholic who would later admit to cutting himself and making up the story for attention. The police were back to square one. In late 1962, a strange odour drifted from the vicinity of a mixed business shop in the inner western suburb of Burwood. Residents had noticed that the shop had been closed suddenly, assuming the owner to have left without giving notice. But his disappearance coincided with an increasingly pungent stench emitting from within. A month went by, and the smell became so unbearable the health department was called to investigate. Upon arrival, the now vacant shop could not be accessed, and police were called to forcibly enter the premises. 
the smell inside the shop was putrid, and officers quickly located the source. Beneath the floorboards, and tucked into the corner of the brick foundation, they discovered the decomposing naked body of who they assumed to be the shop owner, Alan Brennan. The body had deteriorated and had been gnawed by rats, making a possible facial identification impossible. The body was loaded into an ambulance and driven to a nearby morgue. The mortician confirmed there was indeed a male and he was approximately 40 years old. This combined with the shop owner's disappearance was enough to confirm that the body before them was Alan Brennan. Police concluded that Brennan had crawled under the shop's foundations and electrocuted himself. Foul play was ruled out and his death was listed as accidental. Following this conclusion, Alan Edward Brennan was buried at the Field of Mars Cemetery in the suburb of Ryde. Prior to purchasing the shop, Alan had worked at the Sydney Postal Department sorting mail. Colleagues from his days at the department soon received news of his death and attended his memorial service. Among these workmates was a man named John McCarthy. What John McCarthy didn't know at the time was that the memorial service would not be his final farewell to Alan Brennan, as their paths would soon cross again. Six months after Alan's death, John McCarthy spotted a familiar face while walking among the crowds of George Street in Sydney CBD. It was Alan Brennan, alive and well. John, who had attended Alan's funeral, was shocked. Confused, he approached Alan, uttering the words, You're supposed to be dead. Alan, as shocked by the news as John was to see him, quickly snapped back. What do you mean? Still trying to process the situation, John recounted that a body had been found under Alan's shop. In his absence, police had identified it as him. As John worked through it in his mind, it led him to ask the final question. But if you're alive, who was the body under your shop? Alan, who was visibly disturbed by the news, turned from John and fled into the crowd. Following this bizarre encounter with Alan Brennan, John made his way to the nearest police station to report the sighting. The desk sergeant at the station dismissed his story with the advice to go home and sleep it off. The second day, when he reported the same thing, he was dismissed as crazy. This prompted John to approach the Sydney newspaper, The Daily Mirror. Crime reporter Joe Morris met with him, and papers soon ran with the headline, Case of the Walking Corpse. Media attention snowballed, and with this interest, police were soon under pressure to reopen the case of the death of Alan Brennan. The clothing found with the body was thoroughly searched, and the number 1262 was found written inside the coat sleeve. It was soon determined that the coat had been supplied to a Patrick Joseph Hackett upon his release from Long Bay Jail, following a 10-day stint for indecent language. The body that was buried under the name of Alan Brennan was ordered to be exhumed by the police commissioner, and examiners performed a much more thorough inspection of the body. From the decayed remains, they obtained partial fingerprints. These prints were compared with those on file for Patrick Hackett, and they were a match. The examination also revealed a startling revelation that there was evidence of multiple stab wounds and signs of mutilation to the body's genitals. 
These discoveries highlighted obvious flaws in the original investigation, and it was later noted that the police were aware of stab wounds to the body, but this information was not forwarded to the coroner, who had written up the final report on the cause of death. The coroner, a Mr. F. E. Cox, seemed unsatisfied with the efforts of police at the time of his ruling, but could only base his decision on the information given to him by police and the government medical officer. He was informed by police that from their investigations, they could not see any reasons to suspect foul play. What they also failed to inform him of was that there was a singlet found beside the body with multiple stab-like tears through it and it was drenched in blood. There was also large blood stains on the floor and a mattress in the dwelling above the shop. But despite this initial sloppy investigation work, with these recent discoveries, police now felt they were closing in on the man known as the Sydney Mutilator. Following the news coverage of the case of the walking corpse, public interest was rekindled and a new witness came forward. A man who ran a neighbouring business to Alan Brennan was positive he had seen Alan and another man conversing in the shop on the evening Alan had disappeared. The pieces of the puzzle were finally coming together. With the assistance of Alan's workmate, John McCarthy, police created an identikit of Alan and the image was circulated nationally on the front page of all major newspapers. As the image and the news of the crime spread, the attention of railway workers in the city of Melbourne turned to a workmate who had recently joined their ranks. The identikit image bore a startling resemblance to a man they knew as Alan. These work colleagues promptly alerted police. Police finally had the Sydney mutilator in custody. His bloody reign of terror was over. The name Alan Brennan was an alias. The true identity of the mutilator was William MacDonald. MacDonald's physical appearance failed to live up to the image that the title mutilator evokes. He was slim, small, and timid. A far cry from the monster that the public had imagined. But beneath the frail exterior was a man who had proven to be more than capable of the most brutal murders. To add another identity to the list, William MacDonald was born Allen Ginsberg in Liverpool, England. MacDonald showed signs of strange behaviour from an early age, often taking long walks alone at night and sparking a number of police searches when his mother noticed his absence. He was soon diagnosed by psychiatrists as being schizophrenic. In 1943, MacDonald was 19 years old when he joined the army. During this time, in the infantry regiment, the Lancashire Fusiliers, he was raped by a corporal in an air raid shelter. This corporal threatened to kill him if he mentioned the incident to anyone. This experience would play on his mind for the rest of his life. William MacDonald remained in the army until 1947. Upon leaving, he was again diagnosed with schizophrenia and was soon committed to a mental asylum in Scotland. Conditions were poor in the institution. The cold cells were cramped with other patients, and MacDonald received daily administrations of shock treatment. He remained here for six months, until he was finally collected by his mother. As he grew older, he embraced the fact that he was homosexual, and became active in soliciting men in public toilets and bars. 
This soon led to MacDonald receiving ridicule at the hands of peers who were living in much more conservative times than the present. MacDonald shared with a psychiatrist that this ridicule was creating hallucinations and strange noises in his mind. Again, he found himself in another mental institution. Hoping that a change of scenery would assist his recovery, MacDonald moved to Canada in 1949, and then in 1955, he emigrated to Australia. Soon after his arrival in Australia, and while living in Adelaide, he caught the attention of authorities and was charged with indecent assault for touching the genitals of a police officer in a public toilet block. MacDonald received a two-year good behaviour bond and moved on to the town of Ballarat in the state of Victoria, commencing work on a construction site. Construction workers at the time were not known for their tolerance, and MacDonald found himself victimised for his sexuality and received a severe beating from fellow workmates. This beating brought up times of when he was ridiculed and tormented, and with it came the hallucinations and noises in his head once again. The memory of the corporal in the air raid shelter would forever weigh heavily on his mind and in time influence his actions. Following his capture in Melbourne, William MacDonald was extradited to Sydney to face murder charges. He pleaded guilty to all counts. During his trial, the jury would hear every sickening detail of his attacks. The crime that had started it all had taken place in another city, another state. Early in 1961, 55-year-old Amos Hurst struck up a conversation with a stranger at a Brisbane railway station, Brisbane being the capital city of the northeastern state of Queensland. The men decided to continue their conversation over drinks and made their way to a nearby pub. The two shared drink after drink and at some point decided to continue their session at Amos's hotel room. Soon after this night, Amos Hurst was discovered in his room. The papers included his death in the obituaries, but listed it as a death by heart attack. The man that had been in the room with him was William MacDonald. MacDonald had strangled him until he hemorrhaged. Blood spilled from his mouth. And then MacDonald delivered the final blow, striking him in the face with his fist and sending his lifeless body spilling to the floor. William, who had been paranoid that he'd soon be caught, breathed a sigh of relief when he noticed the death was listed as accidental. His second victim, Alfred Greenfield, had been sitting on a park bench in Green Park, near St Vincent's Hospital in Darlinghurst. William offered Greenfield a drink and lured him to nearby domain baths with the offer of providing more alcohol. MacDonald waited until Greenfield fell asleep. He removed the knife from its sheath and stabbed Greenfield approximately 30 times. These blows severed arteries in Greenfield's neck. MacDonald then pulled down Greenfield's trousers and underwear, severed his genitals, and threw them into Sydney Harbour. MacDonald's third victim, 
William MacDonald was walking down South Darling Street and he met 55-year-old William Cobbin. MacDonald lured his victim to Moore Park and the pair drank beer together nearby a public toilet. Just before the attack, MacDonald put on a plastic raincoat. While Cobbin was sitting on the toilet seat, MacDonald attacked, slashing him and then stabbing him with a knife, severing his jugular vein. Blood spattered all over MacDonald's arms, face and plastic raincoat. Cobbin tried to defend himself by raising his arms. MacDonald continued to stab his victim multiple times, covering the toilet cubicle with blood. MacDonald then severed his genitals, placed them in a plastic bag along with his knife and left the scene. On the way home, MacDonald washed the blood of his face and hands. The fourth victim. On the 31st of March 1962, MacDonald bought a knife from a sports store in Sydney. That night, he left the Oxford Hotel in Darlinghurst and followed Frank McLean down Burke Street. MacDonald started a conversation with McLean and suggested they have a drinking session around the corner in Burke Lane. As they entered Burke Lane, MacDonald plunged his knife into McLean's throat. McLean tried to fight off the attack, but was too drunk to do so. He was then stabbed again in the face and punched, forcing him off balance. The assault was interrupted by a young family approaching. MacDonald hid upon hearing voices and the sound of a baby's cry. In seeing McLean on the ground, the couple left to summon police. When they left, MacDonald sprung from his hiding place and he returned to the dying McLean. He pulled him further into the lane and stabbed him. He then pulled down McLean's trousers, sliced off his genitals and put them in a plastic bag. He then escaped from the scene before detectives would arrive. Following the murder of Frank McLean, William MacDonald purchased a shop in the suburb of Burwood. The shop sold sandwiches, small goods, and also acted as an agent for a dry cleaning company. On the night of Saturday the 6th of June, 1962, MacDonald went to a wine bar in Pitt Street. At this bar, he met 42-year-old James Hackett. James was a petty thief and a derelict who had recently been released from prison. MacDonald invited Hackett back to his new residence, and here they continued to drink together. Hackett soon fell asleep on the floor in the upstairs area in MacDonald's living quarters. MacDonald retrieved a boning knife that he used in the delicatessen of the shop. He stabbed Hackett in the neck, and the knife passed straight through. After this blow, Hackett woke up and tried to shield himself, pushing the knife back into MacDonald's hand and cutting it severely. MacDonald then attacked again, eventually striking the knife into Hackett's heart. This blow killed him instantly. Once Hackett was dead, MacDonald continued to stab him repeatedly until he had to stop to get his breath. Blood was splattered all over the walls and the floor. Due to the repeated blows with the knife, it had become blunt, and MacDonald was unable to sever the victim's genitals. He woke the following morning and found himself lying next to the victim. He cleaned himself up and went to hospital to have the wound in his hand stitched up. After cleaning the blood, MacDonald then dragged Hackett's corpse underneath the foundations of the shop. Paranoid the police would come looking for him, he fled to Brisbane. After some time, assuming it was safe, MacDonald returned to Sydney, unaware that police presumed he was dead. If this information was known to MacDonald, he may have never been caught. William MacDonald 
was sentenced to life in prison. On his papers, they were marked, likely to offend again. When asked why he committed the murders, William MacDonald offered the following explanation. I didn't murder those men. Physically, I did. There's no doubt about that. But it is the other person who lives inside me that actually killed them. As a young boy, I was diagnosed as schizophrenic, and I still am today. Schizophrenia means split personality, and it was my other personality that killed those men as an act of revenge on the soldier who raped me. I then mutilated each one in a manner so that he couldn't rape anyone ever again. When I read about the murders in the paper the following day, it was as if it was all a dream. I knew that it was me that had done it, but it was as if I hadn't done it, if you can follow what I mean. Then I would resume my life as normal until the urge to kill the soldier came over me again, and then I'd go on the hunt again.